Dave's Five Hot Takes. Yeah! Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another interview edition of Dave's Five Hot Takes. I'm so glad you guys are back hanging out. Living and loving and loving and loving. <laughs> uh, this week was really, really fun. We have Corey Wong on. And when I say we, I mean me. I don't know why I pluralize myself. Uh, but it was such a fun interview. Corey is just boundless joy. He is full of enthusiasm. You will hear this immediately. Um, he did a tour with me not long ago, which we talked about, and he's just so much fun to be with. He is a mutant, mutant guitar player and kind of, to me, the best version of what you can be when you choose to do something creative. So he was a guitar player that then turned into a singer, songwriter. He's an artist. He's put out records with orchestras. He just put out a, a record with John Baptiste, which is amazing. Um, he has pedals. He has guitar plugins you can use in your Pro Tools or Logic. He has a podcast called Wong Notes that's the best, undisputed, the best podcast name of all time, where he has guitar players come on and, and they talk about, I mean, they talk about playing and guitar playing. He's also on the side a member of Wolfpack. I mean, Corey to me, it, it, he is such a shining example of literally doing everything you can with what you've been given. Um, and it's so inspiring because anyone that says, well, I don't know, you know, I'm just a guitar player. Corey to me is the shining example of how that's never true. And, uh, if you just sort of put your head down and get after it, it's amazing what you can achieve. Um, uh, not to mention that everybody that knows this guy loves him. Um, it was such a fun interview. I'm so glad you guys are here to hang out and kind of hear what we talked about. Um, because again, to me, he's just such a good example of what you can do in music if you really uh, put your heart and head into it. So, uh, with no further ado, y'all check out my interview with Corey Wong. Okay, here we are on Dave's Five Hot Takes with, I don't even know, I don't know how to encapsulate the kind of talented that you are. It's it's not just... Oh, come on. No, don't do this. Let me just talk. Let me talk. It's not just one of my favorite people, one of my favorite touring moments. I'm going to say this right now, Corey. One of my favorite touring... I'm going to start <laughs> laughing thinking about this. We were doing the Christmas tour that you played with us. What, did you one year, two years? You two one. years. Two, okay. And we were sitting in the backstage in, in Atlanta, and you and I were going, doing some crazy voice, and the whole room was laughing. I was crying laughing, and you and I were yelling at each other for like 10 feet away over Indian food. And I just remember <laughs> thinking, this is why I love playing music, is these moments with these crazy, wonderful people. So... Not only are you wonderfully hysterical, I think people uh, that know you know you're just this huge light of joy and energy and fun, but obviously you're a monster player, writer, singer, which I was I was so excited to listen to you singing on these songs, by the way. <laughs> um, but Corey Wong, you're on Dave's Five Hot Takes. Dave's Five Hot Takes. I'm stoked to be here. It's good Dude. to see you, man, and it's fun to hear your voice. You've got such a radio voice. You're like the cat. That's, just, that's the thing that... Uh, how do you not have more voiceover work uh, aside from John Fields voice uh, voice yes. message? Yep. You are his voice message. Is it still? It still is. Oh, that's such an honor. You have reached. <laughs> You've Definitely. reached. Yeah. yeah. John Fields. <laughs> Mix master extraordinaire. You know, I'm going to tell you, Corey, one of my dreams in life that's not been realized. I grew up watching Disney movies and I so desperately still at 42 years old i want to do voiceover work so bad yeah and i just don't know who to tell that <laughs> you know what i mean like everybody that tells me that's like oh yeah i don't know anybody but you should do it and i'm like oh god yeah, uh, well, i need the boy guys like i have a cousin people. in la you know what i mean yeah dude i have a bro i'll, I'll that be works. your i'll be your vo agent <laughs> 
<laughs> the thing is, I would have nothing to lose. That's that's actually what's kind of cool. And actually, this is a side note. If if there's other creative people that are listening, that's something that's sometimes kind of fun. It's like if there's something really dope and you have nothing to lose other than to just hype the thing up. <laughs> what? Go. Just go. Like if you're if you're saying. Bro, I got no VO work and I'm looking for VO work. And I say Barnes is dope at VO. I'll say, hey, I'm gonna go tell win. the world. I'm gonna go tell the world. It you know. It would be hysterical if like you suddenly started amassing a small wealth because you became this just insanely good VO agent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if all because but the minute you realize you had something to lose, it just tanked. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Once once I put my any ounce of my own identity in the VO agent thing, <laughs> I just crumble. Uh, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. Like, this is who I am now. As soon as I write it on my taxes, like voiceover agent, boom, it's done. It's done. All of a sudden, I'm in my head. It takes me, you know, it's all of a sudden I'm the Eagles making their last record. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Eagles making the long run. You're calling me. You, I got 30 missed emails from Dave Barnes. Like, bro, I haven't had, I haven't had any, like I thought we had the Geico account on lock. What happened? Like, man, just, just give me, give me six months. Okay. Just give me six months. You're like, I went in to meet with him, dude, and I just started crying through the whole meeting. I don't know. I just got <laughs> overwhelmed. It was like, I've signed 50 other VO actors. I don't know what I've done. I've, 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 don't you sort of feel like maybe that's like a microcosm of the truth of what we all feel when we start attaching our identity to anything that we do? Yes, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Like you start to really go, which is funny because, you know, we're fast forwarding a little bit here, but. I'm curious about this. Did you feel any of that? Because, you know, it's it's funny. One of the things so amazing about your career is you've been playing for so long. You've played for so many people. But, you know, 2017 is when, you know, you really start making your records. Like the Corey Wong Express leaves the station. And since then, there's been so many. But did you feel that as you started to do that yourself? Like, oh, man, I'm really going like, here I am. I'm not like a side man. I'm not the dude in the band. I'm like me. Did you feel that at all? I mean, it's a constant journey, as you know, uh, for a lack of better terms. I mean, that term has kind of become cliche, you know, to say journey, but it, it really just is that thing, you know. So, along the last few years, there's ups and downs of it. There's insecurities, and then there's moments where you think to yourself, "Man, this is going hard, crushing," <laughs> you know. And then two days later, somebody posts on that YouTube video. This guy sucks. <laughs> John Frashanti did it first, loser. <laughs> but you know, I, I actually think those are kind of funny. But there, there is some sense of it, it, if you wrap the more that I wrap my identity in the thing that I do, the more that I find that insecurity. So you know i think i we've had conversations like this and i know from your background that you understand that if you wrap your identity in something bigger than yourself it becomes less about what you do and it becomes a more about the thing you do being something to um something to point a light towards a different thing yeah. and for me my guiding light in the whole thing has been joy like you had right. said before you know so that for me feels like one of my leading things that if i'm always just trying to make things that are going to 
to bring joy into the world mm. manifested through my music and through my shows and the, through the way that I present myself, then great. And it doesn't always mean ah, super exciting, whatever, which the majority of the time it does. But joy is a multidimensional thing right. that, of course, can be expressed in a lot of different ways. So it's been fun to, instead of putting it all on myself, allowing myself to be in service of the thing. And that has kind of prevented what we're talking about. The John Frusciante Vini. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there, as a human being, we all, we do have emotions and we do have a certain level of ego that is attached to that yeah. as, well, as, as humans. And yeah. Sometimes but I do think to your point, I think when the better we can all be, and I think the longer you do it, you get better at this. Hopefully I think yeah. you can get worse at the same time, ironically, but I do think the longer we all do it, the better you're able to go. No, like I've proven to myself that I can do this and I know what I'm doing. But also I think when those comments come in, you're, there's some perspective. There's just like this, well, the, everybody can feel how they feel and that's fine because this doesn't, this isn't the entirety of who I am. Mm-hmm. And who knows? I mean, I had somebody post something the other day that was, and I don't get a lot of that, thank God, but I had somebody post kind of a mean comment the other day. And I just thought, you know, like, who knows what this guy's going through, man? Mm-hmm. Like, who knows what his parents were like? Who knows what kind of day he's had? Yeah. Like, so, so I think, but I do, I, I agree with you. I think when you have something bigger that you're trying to, live according to or uh, fuel the energy toward those shots at you don't feel quite as detrimental because it's really not about you anyway. Yeah. You know, which is really helpful. Okay. So C-dubs, let's do a little, let's do a little deep dive. Let's take it on back. Let's take it on back. So you're from Minneapolis. That's right. You were born and raised. I was born in New York, but I forgot about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I was technically born in New York, few years there. My fam- my family was relocated there because of my dad's job, but my family is all from Minneapolis. So okay. I was born in New York, few years there. Basically, I'm I'm from Minneapolis. I have no ties to New York anymore. As far as <laughs> you've purposefully cut the ties from New York, you've been aggressive about. I do not. Well, want from to be. upstate New York, from where I was born. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the rest of New York. The rest of New York school. So so when did music sort of come? Like, what was music as a child for you? Was it around a lot? Was it something that you encountered later? Like, what was the vibe? around the long house with with music. Yeah, my dad is a music fan. Textbook 60s and 70s spent all of his money on records, read oh, wow. every liner note from every album. He knew the difference between the ECM jazz catalog, the Columbia jazz catalog, the CTI catalog. He taught me how to spot it by the album cover, by the vibe of just looking at it, by the sound of it. And he was also classic rock, all of that sort of thing. And you know, he was just a big music fan. And he had friends that were in bands. So he got me really hip to a lot of different types of music from a young age. And it was just around the house all the time. My dad has a huge record collection, CD collection. So he was happy to share that with me. We had an insane sound system in the house. Really great. Oh, I love that. You know, because that's that, that mattered to him. You know, we had yeah. a crappy TV, but an amazing sound system. <laughs> so it's great. You know, we didn't have all the we didn't have a ton of great. I mean, my dad likes gadgets and stuff. So we had some fun gadgets. But the thing in the house was the record collection, the CD collection, the sound system. 
So was that in like an osmotic thing as a kid? Like you could just, you just felt that energy from your dad and you were just like swimming in the sea of his love for music? I think so. And when I started to have some sense of wanting to play music, it really excited him. Mm. And then he, you know, has been kind of vicariously been being able to live his musical <laughs> pursuits through me as a computer guy. You know, he's... <laughs> Yeah, he was a computer tech sales and and all that sort of stuff. Does he play anything? No. Oh wow! So he's just a music lover. He's just a music lover, big music fan. So so when did you start playing music? When did that happen with you? There was a girl named Jenny that I had a crush on in third grade, and she took piano lessons. And she <laughs> I was- like any story. I literally <laughs> just to rephrase really quickly. I asked you how you started music, and you started with the phrase "there was a girl, Jenny." And from that moment, I'm hooked. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what happens. <laughs> Jenny sat in the desk across from me in third grade. She started playing piano and raved about it. And I thought, I gotta play piano. <laughs> I gotta get in the game, dude. I got to get in this thing. So I started taking some piano lessons. <laughs> I didn't have the gift. You know, I, I was. Wait, struggling. so this is interesting to me because you are such an incredible player. I mean, you are. If anybody knows you at all, that's one of the things they know about you is just how gifted you are as a player. So this didn't translate on piano. Well, I'll get to that. Okay, and okay. and I I don't I, I didn't really have music comes naturally on any mm. instrument for me. So I played the piano. It was fine. It was fun. I didn't have a lesson time that was right next to Jenny's, so I didn't see her anymore <laughs> than just in school. But we did have something more in common now that we could talk about being right. piano lessons. You're like, and much like you. Hey, much like you. I know you and I were both fat kids. So I was like I'm I'm skinny now or whatever, but you know, in the in this in elementary, this is this just attests to what elementary and middle school kids are. But I was ranked third fattest kid in the school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's again that with the identity thing, it was like, man, I gotta I gotta have something that I can connect to somebody. <laughs> this this girl I have a crush on. Okay, I'm ranked third fattest kid in the school at third grade. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got to get some piano lessons. So I I get piano lessons. It's not quite as tight as I thought. I'm not awesome at it. It's not getting me any closer to Jenny. But it is fun and I do still love music. So 5th grade comes along. I missed out. I was messing around with my friends skateboarding. I missed the band auditions. What's left for the school band? Clarinet. Fine, I'll play clarinet. I can crush right. clarinet. Right. That's what I. That's what I thought to myself. Hey, pff, saxophones out, drums are out. Pff, I'll crush all these kids on clarinet. You know. And I had never touched a clarinet in my life, <laughs> but that was me. Oh, you're telling me I can't play what I want to do? I'll play the thing that you want to do, and I'm gonna nail it. Yeah. So I get in. I start shedding the clarinet. I got a little more skills on the clarinet than I did on the piano. Oh wow. Start going, doing my thing. Then I I get hip to punk rock, Green Day, Alanis Morissette. Which who doesn't see that coming clearing that right into Green Day? You exactly. Know, like, what, what a natural. It's a clear through line. It's a clear through line. Okay. 
Uh, <laughs> anyways, I start playing bass guitar because I love Flea. I love Mike Durnt from Green Day, Les Claypool. Start playing bass. I'm actually pretty good at this thing to start. Uh, just because I have is this? sixth How grade. Is this? Oh, sixth grade. I, I just I I feel it in my fingers and I have the drive. I want to play this thing. It's not that I was really good when I picked it up. It's that I I knew as soon as I picked it up, I'm gonna get good at this thing, and I'm not gonna let anything step in my way. I'm gonna I'm gonna start a band. That's gonna be my thing. You know, that's that's how I'm gonna get Jenny's attention. And, and at that, at that point, the- Jenny had she I, I was I was done with Jenny. <laughs> You moved on. So is that is that I what lost hope is what it was? <laughs> uh, who knows what happened with Jenny? But but did you was that the were you listening all time? I mean, were you listening to Primus and and Red Hot Chili Peppers and were oh, those yeah. the bands? Okay, that was what you're listening to. Yeah, '90s alt rock. Okay, I was too young to do it, but I watched. I think the majority of of Woodstock '94. I, I was in third grade. Oh wow! Fourth grade. I watched it on pay-per-view. Wow. Yeah. So you were in. I was in. I loved music. So <clears throat> once all that stuff was happening, I mean, I watched the Green Day Mud Fights thing yeah, yeah, yeah. from Woodstock on pay-per-view live. And I was totally too young to do it and couldn't believe that I was doing it. But anyways, a couple of years later, I was, I was at that point, I had to be playing music. So wanted to start a band. My friend was like, hey, my stepdad has a bass. I said, we can't have two bass. I play bass. Yeah, but they're not going to buy me a guitar. My stepdad has a bass. Why don't we just have a band with two basses? It's like, fine, <laughs> screw it. I'm going to play guitar. Screw it. Oh. You play bass. And I moved to guitar. And I'm basically, I've been stuck playing guitar ever since. That is so fascinating. So did you feel, so you know how you said when you picked up the bass, you're like, oh man, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to kill this. I love playing this. Did you feel the same way about guitar? Yes. Actually, you know what? Oh, it's not next to me. Dang it. When, when, my, when I got home one day after school in sixth grade, my mom just said, walk in the closet. I have, I have a really big surprise for you. Go to your room, look in your closet. And this, the white Fender jazz bass that I use was sitting in the closet. And there was something about it like I, I don't know. I've never had the feeling in my life like this. I saw that instrument, and my body just had goosebumps. It's like the bass was glowing. There was this <laughs> thing. It, it just it called out to me. It, 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 I, it sounds so weird, but as soon as I saw that bass, it was like I don't know. Thor saw his hammer, or <laughs> Zeus saw, or uh, who's the Excalibur saw his. Yeah, 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 yeah. Machete or sword? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, Somebody's yeah. going to roast me about the wrong thing. <laughs> but well, I don't know. It's just, I, I had these goosebumps just saying, okay, this is it. N- now it's go time. And when I picked up the guitar, it just felt very natural to transition over. Okay, I'm going to learn this new instrument. I still play bass too, but I'm going to play guitar. And it's, it was just hours and hours and hours of practicing, looking at guitar tabs online. And eventually, in eighth grade, I started getting guitar lessons. And what was this stuff that you were? Were you learning the same alt rock stuff when you started playing guitar, like tabs and learning songs? Yeah. And the thing that confused me the most is that the very first guitar book that I bought was Rage Against the Machine: Evil Empire. Oh my and gosh! 
the majority of those guitar tones, when you read the tabs and you're just playing in your living room without plugging in, it sounds nothing like the album because there are so many effects like whammy, wah, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. So when I'm sitting here going ding, ding, ticky, ding, ding, ticky, 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 ding, this sounds nothing like it. These books are off. Who wrote this book? Who wrote this book? This is wrong. <laughs> They're liars. That was literally the first tabs book that I bought. The worst album to get a tabs book. Because I was so in love with those guitar. T- this, I, how do I get this sound? I just didn't understand I needed pedals. That and, is hysterical. Yeah. So then I bought Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, guitar and bass book. Learned bass parts, note for note, the whole record. Guitar parts, note for note, the whole record. One Hot Minute. Red Hot Chili Peppers, guitar book and bass book. I still have them in my bookshelf just to remind me. And then it was Sublime, Green Day, uh, Primus, and a lot of that kind of Smashing Pumpkins. A lot so of that. So what, ha- what, did, what did the guitar teacher bring? Like what did, what did they bring to the table that, that sort of added your repertoire? Well, because they knew I was already hooked, they could see I was... I was going to be playing guitar for a long time. Whatever they threw at me, it wasn't going to make me less excited about the guitar. So what they their approach was, you're already hooked. Let's give you a more rounded approach and let's let's fill in the gaps. So the teacher basically was trying to help me to fill in the gaps in my technical facility and just in my overall playing and thinking. So they got me a little more hip to different chord voicings being able to structure the neck of the guitar in my head, kind of find a way to organize the guitar through the caged system and pentatonic Mm -hmm. shapes, Mm -hmm. major scale shapes, and also just helping me figure out then when I wanted to get into the Metallica catalog, Guns N' Roses, how do I pull this off? How are they playing so fast? Well, you need to work on these things and then you'll get faster. That sort of thing. Was it? And then, and then from there, um, where'd you go to college? I went to the University of Minnesota, and then I went to McNally Smith College of Music. That's what I thought, because you studied jazz there, right? Uh, mostly. My teacher was a jazz teacher, but it was okay. just kind of contemporary music in general. Okay, great. And yeah. did you? And so, well, first, whatever happened to the band from from middle school and high school? Did it? Was that like a thing? It was a thing. We we lost the battle of bands in high school. Uh, well, it was the national battle of the bands. Whoa! Dang. The, oh, for my for my group, and you know who I lost to is Caleb Howley, who is now a friend of mine, a singer who lives in New York. We played, and then his band gets up as soon as they hit the stage, and Caleb started singing. I knew we were toast. <laughs> I, I I literally packed up. I packed up. Watched their set, was blown away. Caleb is such an insanely good singer. Oh, he's ridiculous, and he's Ins- an amazing guitar player. Yeah. So our singer kind of sucked. But the band was tight. Yeah. So, but you knew that wasn't going to get you above. Yeah. These the, guys. We weren't tight enough to, it wasn't, I'm not going to name names. There's other bands that are really famous out there that the band is insane and the singer is not oh, necessarily yeah. Yeah, happy. Yeah. That's not one of my five hot takes. I'm not going to go on record. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an amazing deep dive. That'd be an amazing deep dive. But uh, as soon as Caleb started singing and playing guitar, I knew we were done. But that was all right. And, and we did our thing and, Caleb Caleb's band won and they got they recorded an album and whatever. So what was that the name of his band? Do you remember? 
I don't even remember. Okay. It wasn't like a band that you're like, yeah, they put two or three albums out on Atlantic. It was like, that was probably it. I'm trying to think. Maybe they were called Five for Fighting. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) It was Maroon Five for Fighting. (laughs) Yeah, Maroon Five for Fighting. Uh, yeah, that's. that's so, so, I don't know so why you, Five for Fighting is literally the first band name that came to th- mind. I feel like psychologically, you should dig in on that after this. Just yeah, we, while we you're should. eating lunch and think about like why did that come to mind first? I'll tell you what I do remember standing at Tower Records. You know that was my Tuesday thing when I moved to Nashville. I'd go to Tower every Tuesday and spend like three hours listening to the listening stations. And I remember when that record came out, putting on the headset headset hello putting on headphones and listening to i can't stand the flight me thinking this is an amazing song i yeah. don't know anything about this guy or this band but this song is incredible that's that chorus is always weird to me well, that's a whole other discussion but that little yeah anyway what about but the I, chorus the, the lyrics or the or is it the bridge i was just always was like oh, that's an interesting place to go melodically with this thing hmm because that song to me is a little bit of like the verse is the hook. Yeah. So you kind of have a playground with the choruses. And the fact that he chose to take it to this kind of like really weird thing was like, uh, that shows you how good that verse is. Because the chorus yeah, is yeah. so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, it doesn't matter. You, you guys are in. Yeah, you, you guys are in. You had me at the verse. It's fine. We're, all Literally, all they need to listen to is the first 30 seconds to be counted as a stream anyways. As soon as they move on, it doesn't matter. You're already counted in. Oh you're through God. the door. You're, you're good. The, door. You're you're good. the numbers have been reported. Yeah. So so, so what do you do after college? Like, where, where do you go? What are you thinking? Are you thinking, like, this is the career path I want to take? What did that career path look like? Because you'd studied so much at this point. You kind of know what you're doing. Yeah. You know. At that point, I figured, best case scenario, I get some sort of... Broadway gig or something steady. That was what was in my mind. Best case scenario. It was just not in my mind to, to really be successful as an artist myself or be a part of a band that was successful. I was wanting to be a gigging guy. Gotcha. I was doing some wedding band stuff, playing functions, that sort of thing. As they say in Europe, a function band. A function. (laughs) That's yeah. Um, that sort of thing. I was playing some jazz gigs that paid thirty to twelve to fifty dollars. And <laughs> I could have went up, down, up. <laughs> well, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> Wait, last time I got paid thirty. Yeah. Well, here's twelve. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. So, so it, this is all out of Minneapolis. Yeah. Okay. And then eventually started doing some more playing and expanding my mind. I think. Honestly, the first couple years, for better or worse, I just had my mind closed off to the idea that I could be a part of a national act or an artist and then eventually myself become an international touring artist. It just seemed so much. I I had such a local mindset. I didn't Mm -hmm. have a global mindset. And then eventually I started, my, my mindset started going out, playing more regional stuff oh, maybe I can play for these other artists. And then I started getting invited to play for some other national acts and then starting to see it and seeing other people's vision of the global scale. And then all of a sudden, it just opened my mind. Why Why this whole time wasn't I thinking this way? And maybe I think the good thing is that when in those formative years, I was thinking very local. I was getting my my process ready 
and the way that my work ethic ready, because I had a lot of good teachers and mentors and band leaders around me in the local scene that really set my head straight on how to prepare for a gig, how to prepare for stuff, how to just be good at what you do, at your craft. And then when it came time to do the national thing, boom, I was just ready to go. Did you ever, have you figured out yet why you felt that way? Like you said, like, why did I only see myself as that? Did you ever, like, was there a reason for that that you ever figured out? I don't know other than I was just chasing steady income and it seemed attainable. It seemed like something that was definitely feasible and I saw people around me doing it. Right. For better or worse. So there's two sides. In Minneapolis, there's not a ton of national scene. There's some, but there's not a ton of national, international acts that actually there's a handful more. There's, there's, well, there's probably double the amount, which is not a ton, as when I was cutting my teeth, getting going yeah. just out of college. But there's not a ton of national scene as far as music stuff out of Minneapolis, Twin Cities, which means a lot of the players, it's more of a player's town. And that's in, in general, as far as just the ratio. Right. So there wasn't a lot of that global thinking. But at the same time, the flip side of that is that there's no industry telling me that I can't or telling people that they can't do something or saying, oh, yeah, you should really go for the what chasing the hot thing. It's just the artistry side of it is, what do you want to do? Boom, go for it. Do the thing that you want to do. So there's the artistry side of it. I think there's a cool thing happening there. But the industry side, sometimes I think it attributes to why I, there, there was just not a lot of industry around. I didn't see anybody else around me doing that thing. Which is crazy because Minneapolis has such an incredible pedigree for what it has put out. I mean, obviously Prince, but you think about Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, the incredible contributions that they you know, I mean, semi-sonic, you know, to your point, there are yeah. bands there. But I think especially in that world, it was so vital for so long or this little chunk of time. And I know those guys moved around, but just the sound they created there and that they took with them yeah. prints these really for the for the amount that that city has put out. It's had such a substantial um input into music you know what i mean so i wondered if that had anything to do with as you grew up if you saw any of that or that was ever in your periphery or that was just kind of another thing from yeah sort of i mean here. once i started getting into the r&b and funk scene then it was just it's everywhere on that sort of thing wow. and and growing up in minneapolis and twin cities it's just kind of in the water or whatever mm. you know so there's so much Prince alumni, Morris Day and the Time alumni, Jam and Lewis, people that have worked with all all of that sort of thing. So once you're in the scene, you're rubbing shoulders with people that were on a lot of those records or playing in bands where you're the only one that wasn't on some of those records. <laughs> it's amazing. So it, 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 there's a huge learning experience there. And it was really fun. And a lot of those guys are the ones that really helped me to see above what the way that I was looking at what was possible. Yeah. What was the first national national tour you did as a player? First national tour. I did some stuff with the country singer Brian White. Oh yeah. 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 I love Brian. Yep. So it was kind of like Brian White led to playing with Jason Gray and Brandon Heath, mm -hmm. the CCM thing. Played with some 
contemporary Christian artist for a while. Um, did some stuff. Oh, then with Ben Rector. Did yep. some stuff with you. Did some stuff with kind of your guys' whole circle and scene mm-hmm. of people. And then, I mean, and then at that point, I, the Wolfpack thing started taking off. So it was, that was main. Which it main just, thing. it's so fun. It's been so fun to watch your star rise because I feel like, you know, when I was going to ask this, how did you get connected to Brian's camp? Like, how did you get out of Minneapolis into something where people are going, hey, you know, there's a guy you should hire if you're looking for guitar players, He's but he's in Minneapolis. Like, how did you get connected to Nashville and just that kind of jumping into that river where it's sort of going? You know what I mean? So I played some gigs with this guy, Paul Peterson, who was in a band called The Family that Prince produced. Okay. And he worked with print and he's actually on the Morris day in the time record. He's the keyboard player for Morris day in the time in the purple rain movie. Oh my gosh. He's the, the younger guy in the orange suit. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, Paul was a music director for Brian first <clears throat> gigs and Paul and I became close and he's an amazing musician and he hired me to do it. And so that's kind of, then you started meeting Nashville people who yeah. were then like, Oh dude, I got to get you on this other gig or, yeah, you know, it is where you're, yeah. so I'm on the gig. There's one other cat that I didn't know. And they say, oh man, I love the way you play. I also am on this gig. I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to recommend you for this. And then all of a sudden you're in this thing where now you just know the one guy who was playing drums for the previous band. And now you're in a thing where you don't know anybody. And then this person says, you know, the, the drummer says, Hey, I have this other band and then you join her band and then she's got a friend that has this. And then it's all of a sudden it's just, you bopping all over the place. And then you realize also a lot of these people are just connected and that's right. Mingling. For those who are listening that aren't music people, that, that is, that is one of the most amazing things about the music scene is it, it is almost 99%. Not who, you know, is like, you better know somebody to be successful, but it's who, you know, in that you just never know the gig that you're on what that one gig can give you to another gig that launches another thing that does another thing. And so I think it's, that's such a good word that you're saying, Corey is, you know, you, you always want to be on mind your P's and Q's and, and, you know, but, but it is, it's weird. Cause in our world, that's kind of like your, um, your, uh, what do you call it? Job interview. Totally. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause you can show up and be like, all right, this is just another gig. I'm gonna have my stuff ready. But you know, man, if people like you and they dig what you do, you just never know what's going to happen from this yes. one weekend of shows. Exactly. And the thing is for me, I've done two auditions in my life for bands that I loved. I've never, I've never successfully auditioned for a band, but <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just didn't get hired. Uh, granted, excuse me. I wasn't the right guy for either gig. They were these kind of grungy hard rock bands. Uh, <laughs> you would have killed that in middle school, though. <laughs> oh my gosh! I would have. I mean, musically, honestly, musically, I know I crushed it, and the band knew it. I just wasn't the right stage vibe, yeah, and I yeah, know oh, right. I, I was not. I was not the guy. Right. But whatever. Anyways, w- the thing about yeah, you're you're right. This is it. This sort of thing. Every gig you do is in some way a job interview or audition because you don't know. First off, who's going to be in the band, but also who's going to be in the audience or who's going to be the headliner because you're part of the opening band or who's going to be the opening band that is going to be successful and now see and watched you play on the road for a few years or whatever. And what I've learned is that if you treat every single gig with the same amount of respect and it's just your standard operating procedure, 
to give everything, to be the most prepared, to just crush it, then it's just gonna it's gonna translate. And that's right. And and I've had situations where I've been I've been in a, a part of a band. I wasn't the one hiring. I wasn't the music director. I wasn't the artist. But there's somebody who's been really talked up and a well-known person, big name person shows up and they're not prepared. Yeah. And at that point, who cares how quote unquote good you are or yeah. how big your name is? You're not crushing the gig yeah. and you're not doing yourself or the artist that's paying you any favors. So at that point, and then later down the road, they'll say, hey, should we hire? No, I did a gig with that guy and he didn't. Yeah. It was rehearsal day two and he didn't even know the forms to half the songs. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. And then it's the reverse job interview. All of a sudden, you know, it's the opposite. Now that this person did not get hired because they weren't prepared. And, and, and it's crazy. I feel like, I mean, you can speak to this better than I can probably, but I, I do feel like stars can rise and fall so quickly in that world because you can have a couple of bad gigs where you just, and it's never because you're struggling through something. That's a different thing, like trying to figure it out. But, but when someone just shows up and then you just feel like they don't care. Yeah. You know And I mean? Sadly, I've had, that hadn't happened to me a lot, but I've had a couple of times where you hire someone and they show up and you just feel like, dude, why'd you say yes to this? Like, exactly. you don't want to be here. And then everybody, it just, it affects everybody. And then, but I've also, I mean, I've seen a lot of those people don't get hired a lot after that. You know, it's just crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's, let's, can we do this? Can we, can we get some hot takes going? Let's get in the hot takes. And it's (laughs) funny because I thought about some of these hot takes, not knowing that we were going to talk about nineties. And I I got, I got a couple things. Okay. Give me, give me the first one. What's the first hot take? Hot take one. If we're judging bands by their Spotify top five, which in today's climate, that's a big thing. Every time you're putting out a new record, you want to break into your Spotify top five. For sure. You it's 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 the goal now. It's one of right. the it's one of the checkpoints. Every time you put out a new record, you wanna you wanna break through to your Spotify top five. Whether they put out any new records or not for the rest of time. Sugar Ray's Spotify top five might be the most banging Spotify top five of all time. Corey, I literally just did a hot takes on this. Are you kidding me? Listen to me, Corey Wong. No way. I will fight people over Sugar Ray. And this sounds... I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I just, I recorded it like a month ago. And I was like, people... Bards and Wong, dude. (laughs) I was like, this is... I, so first of all, let me say, let me, let, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I talked about really quickly because I think this is phenomenal. The thing that blows my mind about Sugar Ray is they were a pop, they were a punk rap group, hard rock rap group. That first album, that first album. Okay, yeah. they on the second album, they have Fly and like one other song that sort of flirts with that style. Well, as we all know, Fly was the hit of all hits of all hits of all hits. The rest of their career was those kind of songs. They would have a couple of the throwbacks of like, oh, the, yeah. you know, but, but, but this is, this is what, so that's fascinating one. But the thing that really fascinated me then, who knew that those guys could write the, some of the most undeniable, uh, not just songs, but production to me that I still, I will be in a recording session for my music. And routinely go, God, I just wish I could pull off a song that kind of has that Sugar Ray vibe. And everybody in the session will look at me like, 
are you crazy? And I'm like, I will fight all of you out right now. Dude, I am 100% with you. <laughs> yes. I Tag team, Barnes and Wong, team Sugar Ray. Dude, talk to talk to me about that. Like, what is okay, that? Okay, you're exactly right. Because if you listen to the Spotify top five, you're basically they they found the formula. All right, let's get the drum loop thing. We're we've got a six BPM range we're working with. <laughs> we've got three different drum tones we can use, and we're going to use this loop, and it's pretty much just going to be through the through the whole song. Like, if you listen, everything from fly every morning, someday when it's over. They're pretty much they they got the formula. They're set. They are Killing set. It. You got Mark McGrath, king of the vibe lyric. The lyrics half the time just do not make sense, but it does not matter, and everybody knows them. Everybody <laughs> knows them. It's I mean, it's it's incredible. What, what I, I, I've really, they, and I wonder if you feel this way. They were one of those bands that I always loved the songs, but as I became a professional musician songwriter, my respect for them quadrupled. Cause I realized like these aren't, everybody hears it and like, dude, anybody could have written fly. Anybody, I'm like, nope, no, they couldn't try it. I'll give you two weeks to try to write a song that's half as good as that song. And exactly. I promise you. And then what you really won't do is then find the production that complements the actual song. And is as good as a song, but but I think um, I also like I just think that little river they caught, that little wave they caught was just it. it I'm so glad you feel that way. It is. It, I tell you the fun fact too. I talk about this in podcast. Mark McGrath is also like peerless in his music knowledge. Really, he dude, he is. I don't know if he just never left his room and all he did was read liner notes and stuff. Yeah. But like I watched a music Jeopardy one time. It was he, Edwin McCain and somebody else. And Edwin McCain literally said, they were like, Edwin, how do you feel about the game? And he's like, well, I'm I'm not really given much um, competition because Mark <laughs> over here has the GNP of Brazil <laughs> because he was <laughs> literally 10 times more money, 10 times. Like it was not, it was musical Jeopardy. Nobody was, I mean, it was like he was buzzing before they would get the question done. Wow. And so that, that, that for me was like, okay, dude, huge props. Cause you're not just some skater dude who has this incredible melody for music, incredible gift for melody, but like he, that dude knows music. Dude, Sugar Ray puts me in, now my band, this is a little, my last tour we, I with my whole fall yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah, my whole yeah. fall and winter tour. Sound check set up. I'm listening to the Spotify top five Sugar Ray. It puts me in the mood. <laughs> After the opener, during during changeover, I've got my little Bose mini speaker, Spotify top five Sugar Ray. They literally, my band had to listen to the Spotify top five Sugar Ray songs twice a day. <laughs> the entire tour. Bro, I... <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I... I, there's something about it. I don't know what it is. It triggers this nostalgic. It triggers this primal thing. You know, all around the world, statues crumble for me. Who knows, Who knows how long I've loved, loved you. If somebody brought that line into me, imagine a co-write. Yeah. You're sitting there. You're excited to see your bro. He comes in. You guys are chatting. Like, dude, what do you think? He's like, I don't know, man, but I got the, I got the opening line. You're like, can't talk to me. He's like, all around the world, statues crumble for me. 
who knows how long I loved you. Ooh, ooh that's like, good. That's good. That's good. Hold up. Um, I got the next line. Uh, it totally has every. It's it's a total following of that exact story. <laughs> Everywhere I go, people stop in and see. I'm 25 years old. My I'm mother, mama. God rest her soul. And you and I just like, bro, we are on it today. We are on it. We are on the same wavelength. That I mean, is literally the exact story I was thinking when I wrote the first two lines. I mean, and all four of those lines are independent. What do they have to do with each other? And that is the brilliance of Sugar Ray. It, it that is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. One of the it biggest songs matter. of all time, dude. Sugar uh, Ray is dope. They so so okay so let me ask you this we we're we're I always like to pepper during the five hot takes other questions for you you have put out so much material in the last five years four years yeah. three years how are you doing that um like, I mean like what, what, how, that I just feel like it is I mean and right now you know it's July of the year yeah twenty twenty are you trying to release a record a month right now or something crazy ah uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but dude, it's a but but not. Here's what I want to give you props for: is not only are you just doing that, but I mean, you put out meditation, yeah, which is this beautiful with Jean Baptiste, which is this beautiful, contemplative, quiet, beautiful music, and then you know you have this acoustic record that's equally beautiful, much more acoustic. Thought you know, it, how, this is a lot of stuff. How are you doing that? Well. I have my process down and comfortable, which helps a lot. But we're also talking about five, six years of voice memos on my phone that I've been just sifting through and filtering and putting into folders for the last five years. And when I'm sitting on planes and trains, going back to those folders and and giving it the, the uh, is this still good? And the stuff that passes that test four, five, six times, then it stays in my phone. Otherwise, it just gets deleted. Yeah. And I, I'm always writing. And just like you, you sit down and you you go to work. For a lot of people, they go to their job every day and work for eight hours at their desk. For me, my desk is in my studio and I'm always writing and producing kind of at the same time. I kind of produce mm -hmm. things as mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. writing. So that kind of is two processes at once. I can get a little bit of a better idea of how I want something to really sound. And then when I put really good demos together and do a session, I, for me, my goal when I'm in the studio is to record six songs a day. Dang. Partially, I don't, most of the time I'm not doing lead vocals. You as a vocalist understand that that's, that would be really hard to do. Mm -hmm. But, and even as a band, it can be hard to do. But I don't like to do more than four or five takes of my tunes. Mm -hmm. And I send pretty good demos or instructions to the band ahead of time. And I say, let's show up gig ready on these tunes. Not just, oh, listen through. I try to say, get the stuff really comfortable so we can just play it down. And then we'll just figure out some little nuances from there and get into the weeds and then start tracking. That's and amazing. Um, that's for, as far as my process goes, I like to do that sort of thing. So that way I can record a ton of stuff in, if I do two days of tracking, but then also I've got really amazing players that 
that I'm around and that are in my circle, which is really fun because it, it it's a lot less time taken up when you have people around you that understand, first off, your vision, your big picture vision of what you're trying to do. Second off, the vision of the project and the vision of the song. Yeah. And then there's a lot of uh, a creative interplay. So, you know, the other question I was going to ask you is so much of it is instrumental. How do you name instrumental songs? It's really hard. It's really I mean, hard. How do you do that? Uh, a lot of times when I write music, I'm... I'm I'm a visual person as well. I'm I'm inspired by visual art and landscapes. So when I'm doing that, when I'm naming instrumental tunes, a lot of times I'm thinking about something or visualizing something as I'm writing. Wow! And then the name of the song will have something. Usually comes to do. out of that. Yeah. Or that sometimes, be- actually, I have a friend who who just has the gift for naming things, and sometimes I'll send him an email. It's like, Riley, help me out. What, what are you hearing here? It's like, oh, boom, 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 boom. This is what I see or hear when when I listen to that tune. Because oh the names of your tunes are so good. It's it doesn't feel like, you know, uh, you know, because you one, you have so many different types of tunes. You have super funky stuff to super cerebral, beautiful, you know, atmospheric stuff. But all of them always feel like great names. I never feel like you're <laughs> like, oh God. I mean, I don't know, like duck soup. And you're like, okay, next. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. always get such a kick out of one, how good they are, but two, like, I'm like, it doesn't just feel like you're opening the encyclopedia, like flipping to the J's and then just putting your finger down and going like, all right, Jackalope, that's what we're calling that. So, okay, let's flip again. So, you know, it yeah. actually does seem to fit the songs, which I think is like a minor miracle. Well, know? thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's for a long time, I just wanted to be like Debussy or something where it's, you just call it, Funk number one in E. <laughs> Funk number seven in E flat. <laughs> that would make things a lot easier. But at the same time, I think the fun thing about naming tunes is that, especially as instrumental songs, well, I guess they're not technically songs if they're instrumentals. They're only no, songs yes, if there's are. lyrics. No, 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 no. I disagree. Yeah, I know. That's that's the college Corey coming out. <laughs> college Corey. That's <laughs> a great character. Um yeah, it actually is a fun bit. I'm going to mark that down. College Corey. That's that's good. Um, technically, they're tunes if they don't have lyrics is what I was oh, okay. told. Okay. I like Anyways, that. whatever. It, because instrumental stuff doesn't have lyrics or tone of voice in messaging how you how you project you know, the tone of your voice when you're singing something, the song title does in some way kind of set up that little thing. Um, right. Along with the production and the writing and all the stuff, just like any other song, but yeah, the title does kind of help nudge that thing along. Yeah, I get that. Uh, all right, what's hot take two? Hot take two. Smash Mouth. <laughs> Fush you, Mang, and Astro Lounge. Two of the greatest produced albums of all time. I'm not saying the two greatest. I'm saying two of the. You want to talk vision? You want to talk about execution? You want to talk about just solidifying a thing and changing this in somewhat of the scope of pop music for a few years by all of a sudden having this punk meets lounge meets kind of futuristic Jetsons, like vintage future, vintage future, <laughs> vintage future. It's amazing. You know? Can that be the, can that be your genre? I like that vintage future. <laughs> Meets Tiki Band, meets 
incredible pop music. Dude, those records are insane. Could you be, could you imagine at, at your age now, you've done music, you've, you, you've had and are having success, that someone brings that project to you? Major label calls, you got a bud in New York. He's like, hey, Corey, I got this band. And he literally says exactly what you said. He's like, they're like Tiki meets future uh, retro meets uh, the Jetsons, but like 60 years. And and he's like, could you, I just get, I get anxiety just thinking about being on the call, much less me being like, yeah, we're going to be in the studio next week. And I got to like, that gives me so much anxiety. <laughs> well, you know? I, I think it, honestly, that description just sounds so fun because all of a sudden, if, if that's, if they actually had those, if there was a drawing board and they were saying, all right, here's the dart here, here's the dartboard. Here's what we're shooting at for this record. Mm-hmm. How do we accomplish these things? Then it, it's actually a fun challenge. Okay. How do we get the lounge thing? Some of it's production stuff. Should we put in a vibraphone? Should we put in some, some spicier chords, some minor six chords, minor right. major sevens, you know, so there's certain production things, musical things that they might use to do that. Or, you know, the way that they use a farfisa for some of the lead lines. Oh, that actually has a really interesting thing that a regular synth wouldn't have or just a regular B3 wouldn't have. And some of the tones that they used, I don't know, th- those, the production on those is just so insane. The ear candy. Mm-hmm. Th- there's a lot going on, but it's like the perfect amount of a lot going on. They, they've also got this weird dilemma, I would think, um, and he's now, it's kind of an iconic voice, but the singer is, I mean, he's got such a unique voice. Yeah. So you're also dealing with a little bit of that, like, um, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, crash test dummies a little bit where you're like, how sure. do we frame this voice in a way that it doesn't sound, you know, so you've yeah. also got that, like, forget the music. You've also got the singer's going to sing like that. And you're like, yeah. how are we going to make this be? <laughs> but they have hit after hit. Hit after hit. I mean, I'm looking at their thing, and I forgot about Walking on the Sun. That's that's how big of hits they had. Dude. That, that their first song, which was arguably, which anybody who'd been like, that's one of the biggest songs of that decade, and then they just kept getting bigger. I mean, obviously, All-Star being the one that's just, you can't. Oh, yeah. That's in another stratosphere. Can't get enough of you, baby. Oh, yeah. Can't get on but again, I'm just like some producer. I, I want to give some producer like massive props on going. Oh no, no, this is a, I'm sitting on a gold mine. I think it's I think it's Eric Valentine. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Do you want to know how? This is what made me realize it. This this is what made me put this hot take on the list three days ago. Okay, it's a little. I'll back up about a month ago. My daughters discovered Lizzie McGuire. Okay. Who is Hillary Duff? Yeah, is that right? Okay. Yep. Uh, they discover Hillary Duff. My my youngest daughter, she's seven. Throws on a Hillary Duff album at breakfast. Both her and my other daughter say to themselves, "This sounds kind of like that Smash Mouth song. It sounds like they're kind of trying to do something like that Smash Mouth song." There's a Hillary Duff song. You can tell. And then my wife chimes in with, oh yeah, this sounds like they're trying to to make a new version of Walking on the Sun. Boom. Right there. My kids recognized this. Wow. It, it's just, it's one of those things. You know, like there's certain influential things. Oh, let's let's do the Paramore thing. Or right. let's do the Echo Smith thing. 
Or, you know, there, I, there's so many times, I don't know what, those those are two references that I heard all the time when I was doing session work a few years ago. Oh, let's do, give me that kind of Echo Smith thing. Oh, okay, I know what you're going for. Give me the Paramore thing. Okay, I know what you're going for. Give me the whatever thing. When When all of a sudden you are the reference and you're the reference so hard that kids 15 years later, 20 years later are recognizing it, that's kind of insane. That Yeah. That's proof enough. That's the proof enough to me that you've done something right. Yes. You know? So, okay. So, so Corey, talk to me. I can't believe you referenced a Smash Mouth. I mean, that is incredible. Actually, I want to listen. I'm going to listen to Walk On Sun the minute this is done because I, All Stars just become so ubiquitous that it somehow crushed another song, which was equally as well known for a long time until that song just swallowed it whole. Yes. And then it just became meme world. A couple years ago, somehow, which is incredible. Actually, you know what? Cody Fry told me that one time at his, I think it was his sixth grade birthday party. At his sixth grade birthday party, he got four copies of that second Smash Mouth record. (laughs) Four of his friends bought him that record. Ask Cody about it. I I I I think it's four or five friends. Almost everybody at the party that was their gift to Cody. That, again, is another testament. That is insane. Here's the Smash Mouth CD because this is the best gift. Yeah. Oh, five people think that? That's... Dude, that's, whoever, whatever label they were on would have just like frothed at the mouth hearing that story. They would have oh, been I like, know. everybody in the marketing department's getting the raise, baby. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing... Here's the other thing, too. Quick aside. I, I've, I've thought about this so much in the last year, and I don't know what's made me think about it, but this is a this is a great example of this conundrum that I have. Or it's not a conundrum. It's just a thought. This, this is, you're going to throw something at when I say this because it's the dumbest thing, but let me unpack it. The singer's voice matters as much as anything that's happening. And here's what I mean by that. Like, duh. Like Whitney Houston, sure. I will always love you. It's not, I will always love you without Whitney Houston or Dolly. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. This band is a great example of that. You could stick, I don't know why I just thought of this, but Brian Adams, an incredible singer. Yeah. Incredible singer. Killer tone. If he sang All-Star, you'd be like, and let's say you didn't even know the Smash Mouth guy, but if he just came out and sang that, you'd be like, what is going on? But there is something about this gravelly voice dude that if he ever sang the Star Spangled Band, you'd probably be like, eh, I don't know about that. (laughs) But when he sings his songs, they are, they're cataclysmic hits. Exactly. And so it's always fascinating to me that songs songs need certain voices to make them what they are. And you can put, if Whitney Houston had sung Walk in the Sun, it's not the same song. Mm-hmm. The best singer with a great song is not the best version of that song. You yeah. know what I mean? And so there's something, especially when someone who wrote it sings it, that that it's able to carry it to the place it needs to go because of the way it all sort of the genesis of the whole thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That fascinates me. Yeah, and as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking of other singers that would be able to pull off Walking on the Sun and Can't Get Enough of You, Baby, and All-Star. And I'm thinking, so Walking on the Sun, I could hear hear Kimbra crushing Walking on the Sun, but I can't necessarily hear Kimbra crushing All-Star. Um. 
I, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. But he pulls off all these. But I think that's what's really cool about somebody finding their voice and finding right. their thing. That's right. And then, you know, nobody's asking Kimbra to sing Walking on the Sun. I would love to hear her <laughs> sing that. You should ask her to. <laughs> that would be amazing. But I I think you're right. The, the, the sound of the voice. Yeah, something about the way it all mixes together is fascinating. Okay, so, so talk to me about Wolfpack and Fearless Flyers. I mean, one of the things that's so fun about your career is you have this way of sort of being in things without having to be in the thing, you know, like you're, you're, you're in them, you're there, you're doing it, but then you've got your career, you've got your shows, you're still playing with other people intermittently. You know, it's like, how how did the Wolfpack thing even come about? That, uh, they came and a lot of the guys came and saw me playing with a band in, in Minneapolis at a place called Bunkers. And, we became friends and then eventually started playing together. And then when I, you know, became a part of the band, the thing about that, kind of what you're saying, the, re- the, the real answer to why that works is because with Wolfpack, for all of us in the band, there's probably 20, 30 days a year of commitment. Mm. We don't really tour much. Yeah. And what we've been doing the last couple of years is every time that we go out, We'll normally do a couple show run or we'll do little festivals here or there. We'll do uh, a night at Red Rocks and we'll tag on a couple days of recording before or afterwards. So it's not a ton of commitment and as far as time goes. And that's by design because um, everybody has their other stuff that they're working on. And I don't know that the original intention was of the band was to to be a full-time band. Right. And it's really fun to to have it be the way that it is. And Jack, as a band leader, loves to see us each do our own things as well and really wants to see us flourish in those things. Because in the end, it all we all help each other by doing all that stuff, you know, right, as, right. as a community. So right. when Theo does well, the band does well. When I do mm. well, the band does well. When the yeah. band does well, I do well. When the band yeah. does well, Woody does well. And, right. and it all feeds everything. So it's really, it's really cool. And then the side project of the Fearless Flyers... Jack had a vision for that a few years ago. We put the band together. Year one, our commitment was three days of recording in LA, and that was it. 2019, our commitment was three days of recording in LA. Uh, We do a surprise encore to the Wolfpack set at Red Rocks. We didn't tell anybody that the Flyers were going to be there, but Jack and I had the idea of, instead of just an, an actual encore, we had the fearless. We do an encore with Wolfpack, and then do a a surprise Fearless Flyers set. Oh, I love that! Which I thought was going to be really fun, and it was. And then we opened for Wolfpack at Madison Square Garden. So for Joe and I, it was literally the exact same amount of commitment as Wolfpack, other than the three days of recording, because we are obviously already doing Red Rocks and MSG. For this year, we recorded a record for a few days. I mean, it's always like two songs a day. Well, this year we did a, a 10 song record. So we we actually recorded 10 songs and oh, we did 10 songs in, in three days this year. So did the album in January. We had planned on doing maybe four or five shows this year and no shows with Wolfpack. So the commitment is so little that it allows me to be able to do all the other stuff, it allows Antoine to do what he wants to do. Joey gets to do his thing. Theo gets to do his thing. And Dart is a part of a lot of those projects. Woody's putting out his own music and Jack gets to do his thing, which yeah. is just be internet guy. 
You're so <laughs> quote unquote internet guy. Um, I, one of the things I love about those projects is it's just so much talent. I mean, it's that has to be so fun to be making music with people who are so good at what they do. It's really fun. It's really incredible. And and, they, and the thing is that it all stemmed from friendship. Mm. That actually is when we get together, we record one song a day with Wolfpack because it's normally hang out. We hang out for maybe an hour and a half and everybody else, the, the engineers are like, well, are you guys going to work? <laughs> We're probably hanging out for an hour, maybe two hours, talking, eating, chilling, talking about whatever topics it happens to be that year. Sometimes it's about, uh, you know, uh, a vegan diet. That was a big thing for a year and a half, still kind of ongoing. <laughs> Other things have to do, you know, before it was all music industry stuff, business stuff, streaming stuff. Where is everybody going to live? What's the best city to live? And now it's kind of a, a mix of all kinds of things. So it's funny, just there's, there's topics of conversation that just pick up. We haven't seen each other for three months. We'll get in the studio. We're just hanging out for a couple hours talking about just continuing the conversation from before. Mm. And then we get to recording the song and then we're done and we go back and do the same thing. We're just talking and hanging out for the day. And so with both those bands, do y'all record, like are the videos the actual recordings? Yes, absolutely. That's amazing. That's and so no cool. headphones, no click. It's all just in the room. Guitars are that. never mic'd. Well, sometimes they're mic'd because engineers want that, but I always delete the tracks before I give the sessions to Jack. <laughs> he doesn't even want them. And actually, Jack, also, starting two albums ago, if we would do three takes, he doesn't even want the files for the previous two takes. Just It's easier file management for him. <laughs> so it's just on a thumb drive or just, oh, here's a Dropbox folder. Here's the eight tracks. Overhead, kick, snare, two piano mics, the two direct guitar lines, the direct bass line, the direct whirly line, and here's the video file from the iPhone, all in one bot in, in one folder. And then it's really easy. As you know, working on projects where there's multiple takes, oh, 30, 40 tracks, it can be a lot. So for Jack, he's got a nice workflow where it's very easy. Yeah. And yeah, that seems to be what is thrived. And and in the room. We just use amps, really low volume to control just our own monitoring. So I I will a lot of times not really hear while we're doing the actual recording what Woody is playing on the Whirly. But of course, while we're working things out, oh, what are you playing there? Okay, here's how that fits within that. But when we're yeah. actually doing the tracking, sometimes I'm not really hearing everything in its whole thing because the drums are a little louder, but they play really soft when we're playing. And my guitar is pretty, it's only loud enough for me to, to need as much as I need to be comfortable. Right. Which is the Motown thing. I mean, that's totally, that's, that was how those guys did that. Yeah. You and know, it's great. It's in the room. Yeah. That's amazing. So a hot take three, hot take three, hot take three. I think they might want to revisit the mix on taking it to the streets. <laughs> oh, I please tell me why. <laughs> I have a guess, but I want you to tell me why. Did the bass player mix this song? Yes, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> it's so loud. It's unbelievably loud. You, I mean, that's how good that song is, though. <laughs> God, it is. I love that you said that. I always think that. Well, let's throw on that song. If you, if you guys listening, or guys or girls, whoever, if you're not 
familiar with this mix. You're, you're familiar with the song. Everybody knows taking it to the streets. Put it on now and listen to the way that the instruments are balanced. Is everything where you think it's appropriately... It, like the bass is louder than the lead vocal. It is. And it's picked, which is like, it's so pronounced. It's incredible. It, 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 so, so here's a fun fact. Um, Jakir King, I'm pretty sure Jakir, who's a, who's a producer engineer yeah. here in Nashville. I know. I don't know him, but I know who he is. Yeah. yeah. Jakir's, you know, he's done Kings of Leon, yeah, James Bay, a bunch of stuff. Um, one of my buddies, I'm pretty sure it was Jakir that said this. I don't want to discredit, but he basically told a friend of mine, like every great song from like the seventies and eighties, all of them have one thing that is just obscenely too loud. And, and when he said that, it messed my paradigm because now every song that comes on from that era, I'm like, why is that? Holy cow, that shaker is so loud. I, I talk about this yeah. with, with Push It. If you listen to Salt and Pepper's Push It, you'd think the song is a shaker song. It's <laughs> it's so loud. But it's but there's something about that era that it's he's he's right. Like you'll find some triangle and yeah. you're like, that is making my ears bleed. Yeah. Like, did the speakers in the mix room just not have anything above 12K? And did, did somebody just send this too late? And they were like, just throw it in the mix. I don't know what the, yeah, he was gonna do, but just <laughs> he said he wanted to just throw it in there and let's just see what happens. I so, mean, yeah. And, and a lot of the ways for people listening, a lot of times back in the day, there wasn't what's called automated mixing, where now we can program things in a certain place in the timeline to get louder or softer. So sometimes they would have, the actual members of the band and the mix and the mixing engineer kind of ride the faders as the song is going on to tape to print the mix. I always imagine the bass, the bass player, and the Doobie Brothers just kind of putting his elbow over and not really. Everybody's so focused on their own. All right, guys, we're up against. We got one more pass at this thing. That last mix was perfect. This time. When it gets when it gets to that last chorus, just bump the drums up a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, we just need to get through this one more time. The label said we need to send this tape in today. It, yeah. it literally is the last day that we yeah, could send it. it in. And all of a sudden, they, all right, everybody do the exact same thing you did last time, except drums just go up a little bit in the last chorus. Bass player, okay, I got, I got this. Yeah, yeah, he's got, his, he's got his elbow over the. Nobody can see the. Yeah, nobody can see it. He's just he bumps up the face. Yeah, by too concerned with their own parts, or or the mix engineer, the the bass player wasn't there. I'm, I'm thinking of another scenario. All right, I, I I got one more chance at this mix. Takes a drink of his coffee, sets it down on the mixing board, and accidentally puts the fader for the bass up 12 dB of where it should be, and then it gets printed. But the band the band left. Like they listened and they approved the mix. They said, "Okay, just print." Yeah, yeah, this mix is great. Um, just print it. Yeah. We listen to the mix. Just just print that mix. Okay. Yeah. Engineer puts his coffee down, accidentally bumps up the bass fader 12 dB. The band doesn't hear it until it literally is on wax <laughs> and the album's out. Or you see him slip in the engineer. As the whole band's leaving, he grabs his bass last. He slips him 100. A hundo, <laughs> and he just winks and the guy's like, I got you. And, yeah. that, and, it, and it lives in infamy, you know? That, or the, or is, they're just sitting there, and and the bass player is on the couch in the back of the control, uh, back of the control room, listening to the mix, and he's confused by the whole thing, and they're mixing and and they're saying, "Man, this mix sounds great." And the bass player is looking around like, "Really? Wait, I'm really hot. It's, you guys, <laughs> okay? This is dope. 
This is dope. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because as soon as I say this mix sounds great, they're going to think there's too much bass because We're I toast. think the mix, yeah. It's so loud. You know, it, it, here's what people have to understand. And Corey just said this, but but I think if you can imagine if you've ever seen a picture or a video with a mix console, so these huge 64 channel mixing boards, literally what Corey is saying is the truth is for a long time, if you wanted to change anything, so every, every um, fader, you know, that goes up and down was assigned to a sound and a microphone. So got, it was an athletic pursuit to mix an album because you would have to literally walk over. And if the, you know, now this is when the guitar fades down, you're pulling the guitar down, you're running over to make sure the BGVs come up right here. You're pulling the BGVs down with all five of your fingers. Cause there's five parts. Then you have to run over and this is all real time. And so literally mixing a song, the final mix of something before automation all automation did was you could actually assign those things what to do and they did it on their own the same every time the same every time you would literally have to remember and Corey just said this even as he said that you would have to remember oh shoot when does the guitar what do we do on the last take oh yeah it goes up and i need to go up in the bridge okay and so literally you are athletically your interns you have four people on the board and everybody had an assignment like Jim, your drums and bass. And Jim's like winking because <laughs> he's like, I'm another jack of bass. But, but, but so you understand what it was a crazy, crazy thing. Like, and, and so those guys weren't just as good at mixing, but they had this unbelievable ability to have people with them that knew, like, even how your fingers stretched and what they touched. And you want to hit something accidentally or push something, out, you know, to Corey's point, like you sneeze and the fader goes up when you sneeze. And then <laughs> all of a sudden you have a BGV that shoots out of nowhere and ducks back down, you know. And so it was a very athletic, you know, thing you had to do with these mixes, you know. So, so Corey, we're, as we're moving on. Tell me about this podcast. You have this. You have this amazing podcast called Wong Notes. Wong um, Notes podcast. Yes. And, and and everybody can tell you're such a pro. I mean, you've been doing this. You got the. If they could just see you. They'd see this this amazing mic. You're looking amazing. You got your setup. So so tell me about the podcast because one, it's everything about it is wonderful. The branding is incredible. Um, you have had just superstar guests. Tell me t- how did that come about? What is it? Tell me about the podcast. I didn't really have starting a podcast on my list or even on my radar. But I was approached by Premier Guitar Magazine and they said, we want to start a podcast. We think you're the cat. Will you do this podcast with us? Like, Which, man, ah. is, is quite a compliment because, I mean, they, they could kind of go to anybody. I know. Which is you fun. Know? Yeah, it was a... It is, maybe, maybe I'm their 12th call. Maybe 11 people turned down the role, which that's fine. I don't care. We got a hard no from Clapton. <laughs> hard no from Clapton. <laughs> yeah, Annie turned us down. St. Vincent's working on a new record. So uh, she said maybe season three she could take over. But uh, look, who's this band? Wolf, Wolf Packs. Uh, this, this guitar player, see if one of these guys will do it. Joe Dart said no, ask Corey. <laughs> Anastasiosa, uh, he's a maybe. <laughs> we make it Anastasio for the half of a season. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know which call I was. I'll, I'll, I like to pretend that I was call number one and I like that. Um, it's a fun podcast. It's been it's been crazy to do because Premier Guitar asked me to be the host for it and uh, presenting it with Fender, which is super cool. So between Fender's roster, Premier Guitar's roster of of the people that they're connected with, and my friends and people that I'm connected with as guitar players and peers, we've been able to put together a really fun list of people for me to interview, many of which 
are so different in genre or style. And it's not all just guitar players. Like for me, one of my heroes of all music in general is Bela Fleck. And I got to interview him. George Benson, who was definitely, I gave them, here's my top five. Here's the top five, six people that I want to interview. I'll do the podcast if you can get me these people. And they said, we can promise you two of them. Uh, we, we, we know we can get these two. And, and I got those two in the first as, okay, game over. Yeah. So it's <laughs> as much as me just wanting to talk to some of my heroes and kind of get a, a lesson quote unquote from my heroes, so questions that I want to ask. And that I think also other guitar players and musicians, creatives in general want to ask. So George Benson, uh, John Schofield, it's, it's been insane. What, what have been some of your favorite sort of takeaways? Well, I think the thing that I wanted to, the the theory that I had, the thesis, a lot of it is what creates an icon? What is it that makes a legend? Because wow. so many of the people that I'm interviewing are current legends or future legends. You know, look, looking at people like Schofield or George Benson or Joe Satriani, Eric Johnson, that have, that have held the torch for a while. And are have a lot to, a lot of experience, and then there's other cats like Molly Tuttle, who is going to be a bluegrass legend. She will go down in history. She's incredible. And asking them and figuring out what it is, what they think is it that makes somebody iconic, that makes something iconic, that makes somebody a legend, and it's kind of proving the point or the thought that I had all along is that it's finding your individual thing and finding the thing that's magnetic about you and that connects with people and exploring that and doing it to its highest degree of excellence. That's amazing. I've never thought about that question ever in my life. That's a great question. What do you think creates an icon? Like what, what makes something iconic? What makes a legend? I think you nailed it. I really think that's right. I, I I think I was I was thinking about that as you were as you were talking. I was like, I think it is that you just lean really hard into what it is that you seem to do that's a little different than everybody else. Sure. And then you just and, and you know you always develop and you add things on and take things away. But I do think icons are known because of what they do. Like, what is the thing? What's the color they bring to this palette? Yeah. And it's just not the same color. Yes. Anybody else's. Exactly. You know. And it sounds it's it's distilled and sounds very simple, but I think that's that diamond is very hard to find. But if you can find that in yourself and you can start to recognize that in other people, then I think and, and I think that's why it's important to explore art, not just music, but film and visual art. Mm. What is it that makes Mark Rothko interesting? What is it that makes Salvador Dali and what is the calling card. What's that voice? What is a Quentin Tarantino film? What is what's that voice? What is iconic? Don't signature? you think too the thing about that it, that's so interesting? And I think as long as you and I've been doing this, it becomes especially interesting because you've done that thing, right? Like sure. you've done your thing for a while, and you're starting to go like, is there is this death? You kind of have to die as an icon to knowing like this is what I do, and there's going to be some moments in my career when I'm going to go. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't do that. Sure. I don't want to be like the whatever. I want to be the the wah-wah guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? But 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 at some point it's like, well, you can do that, but if you're if you're really trying to to curate and foster this thing, 
um, you know, you got to be mindful of decisions you make that may uh, look like you're going against what people know you as doing. And I think you can always do that. Like, I mean, some of the best records ever is where a band went, we want to do a record like this. And you go, yeah. oh my God, it's amazing. But, you know, you also see where it can confuse people that love what you do because they do tend to think this is why we know you and why you're iconic to me is because this is the thing you do. So it's it's a tricky, it can be as much of a blessing a, a burden is a blessing, I think, sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. And I was like, we don't care, man. This is why yeah. we came. Do the thing. You know? Yeah, and I think that also, in some ways, scares people from exploring. Speaking of the... I know, since I mentioned people that... My top six people that I wanted to interview, and I only got two of them, uh, people are probably curious on what the other ones are. One of the people that, was, that I really want to interview, who I love, is Bonnie Raitt. Mm. And thinking about her as a guitar player is so good. She's so captivating and compelling on the guitar. But then as a songwriter and as a singer, that's a completely different thing as well. So she actually, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask somebody like her, somebody like Vince Gill, Prince, obviously I can't interview for this, uh, but people that are known as songwriters, guitar players, singers, that have made such iconic impacts on music in general, for those three especially, Bonnie Raitt, Vince Gill, Prince, I know there's many more. Eric Clapton is one of those people on my list. Uh, even, and John Mayer. You know, there's a lot of people like that where that are, they've got all three of those things that they could be an icon in the songwriting world, yeah. icon in the singing world, an icon or a legend in the guitar world. From the guitar perspective, what have you learned from those other things, the guitar or the singing and the songwriting, and how has the guitar thing influenced or mm. or, or or helped with the other things? Yeah, that's and that's amazing. like you're saying, sometimes people just want to hear you do the thing. I put out an acoustic record because I wanted to, and I feel like it's still a part of my thing, but I definitely have people saying, I want Funky Corey back. It's like Funky Corey's still here. I just wanted to make some acoustic music because I'm a person who has a complex weave of human emotion and I want to express that in different forms of music. <laughs> but 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 you you nailed it. I mean that's exactly I think the plight that I have so much empathy for for people who are known for things really specifically is you know it, it's 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 the thing that got you to the dance. So you're thankful for it and it yeah. usually is the thing that gives you the most fire. Like totally. you got to do a thing. That's going to be a thing. Yeah. But you know, we are, man, we're complex. Um, and I think the thing that's always a challenge for all of us is really believing that whatever that thing is, that when you put it out, my, I, I have to remind myself of this all the time when I have like a song I want to put out that people are like, what? Then I'm like, you just got to make it so good that they go. I had someone tell me this and I thought this was the greatest compliment. They were like, I didn't know I wanted to hear that from you, but I, but I did. Gridden, uh, Good Riddance, Time of Your Life by Green Day. Oh, my gosh. I go. had no idea that I wanted to hear Green Day do an acoustic song yeah. that had some heartfelt emotion that wasn't something just like Basket Case or When I Come Around that's right. or that's Welcome right. to Paradise. When that song came out, that's the exact thing. I didn't know I wanted to hear Green Day do that or say yep. that to me, but they helped me get through a lot of my younger years and, yeah. and, and understand music in a different way because they did that. And That's I right. think that was, yeah, like you're saying, it just has to be that good. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really hard, especially Very if that's hard. not the thing you do. It's hard enough probably... to just do the thing that you do really well. That, be, that you know, it's hard enough for me to make 
energetic funk music that I think people are going to enjoy and want to listen to, let alone doing something that's different than the thing that people know me for and know that they can go to my... And I think, you know, I I wish people, I wish fans, this is always tricky to say, but I'll say it. I, I do wish fans were more gracious and appreciative for when people that are kind of, you know, when, when all of us who do something, do a little something different because exactly your point. It's made me, my gosh, I look at bands and, you know, artists that I love. And when they do a record like that and go like, man, good for you, man. Like, thank you. Because I know that's not easy and it's really, it takes a lot of bravery. All right. Give me the next, uh, we have hot take four. Is that where we're at? This is Hot Take 4. Hot Take 4. They are in my top three favorite bands of all time. I love this band. I adore them. This song is potentially my favorite song to dance to of all time. Oh, wow. Maybe second to Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson. Ugh. But what? Uh, this, this is one of my absolute favorite songs in the world, one of my favorite bands in the world. I, there is zero disrespect in this hot take. Okay. I have the utmost respect for Earth, Wind, and Fire. But I think they maybe could have done one or two more takes of September. (laughs) (laughs) I think the lead trumpet player is struggling a little bit in verse two to get those notes, to get that lick, and in the outro. (laughs) I think they did Verdine White dirty on a couple spots on the bass. So dirty. On the intro? So dirty. Dun, 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 dun. That moment drives me crazy every time I hear that song. I think every time Verdine White goes into Trader Joe's and September is playing on the speakers, he's he's thinking to himself, why would the producer not let me just do one take? Why could I not just punch that one spot? Are you that kidding me? That one spot. I, I, Corey, let me say this really good. That's one spot. So the intro of the song, do, 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 it. It is a earworm that ha- that has an apartment complex in my brain, like it has set up residence. It, it because every time I hear it, I think there is no way on God's green earth he meant to do that. But somebody just was like, "Dude, we it's, gotta leave it." But but that was the take, you know. When it, the first post chorus, ba doo doo ba doo doo, they all start speeding up like five six BPM, as if they weren't comfortable. Like, this is take one. We're not necessarily settled into the tempo yet. Yeah. By the time it gets to the post course, that sucker speeds up. But you know what? It's great. And there is a lesson in that. This is one of the most iconic recordings and songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ending scene of Night at the Museum. It's like the perfect song yeah. for the, the museum and all the everything to come to life. And it's a party. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's one of those classic party tunes it's one of the greatest songs of all time. One of the, to me, one of the greatest recordings of all time, but somehow it's got all these imperfections. And I think there is a real, so my hot take is that maybe they should have done one or two takes, but at the same time, the hot take is it's perfectly imperfect. And it's a good lesson in as, as artists and creatives that sometimes it doesn't have, everything doesn't have to be exactly yep, perfect. Yeah. Yep. If the thing is that good, September yep is that good of a song. The vocal take, everything else about that song is so good that it doesn't matter that within the first five seconds, there are some clear blunders mm. and the the lead trumpet part has some things that eh, that just wouldn't pass nowadays. There's yeah. there's so much stuff that, that we as creatives, when we deem them imperfect, 
it, it, we just write them off. And, and I think also for us as human beings, you know, whether it be, I have a large Adam's apple, somebody's got a mole, you know, whatever. Somebody's balding. Uh, they got a weird, you know, one leg is different than the other for some re- for something. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. I think there's, there's things about us as human beings that might be deemed imperfect, but they just make us who we are and that's right. fine. And, right. you know, it's, it's that kind of loosely cliche lesson in that, but it, it is fun to hear. Wow. That one got past the band, the producers, A and R. Everybody, it's that good of a song, and that's maybe yeah. just a testament to what you were saying earlier. Well, you know, too, which I've talked about on five. It speeds up ten BPM, ten from the it's beginning. It's ten, of, ten, Ooh. ten. So, so, but, but here's the thing, and this is what I grieve, and I am as guilty as anybody about this with songs. Is if you that song, I would. It's we have a lot of simpatico here. I'm realizing me and you, Corey. Yeah, it that, seems that as is, if somebody already sent you my five <laughs> hot takes before. No, I, I promised the, people I did not send these no, to Dave. This is this is really this funny. is this is my favorite. This is I promise you, I'm not making this up. Two of my favorite songs to dance to are "Can't Stop Till You Get Enough." Uh, or no, what'd you say? Uh, 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 don't stop. Uh, you get uh, enough. Don't stop. You get yeah. Um, and uh, well, really, God, it's kind of a triad. Pyt, and then also. Um, 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 oh, what's the crazy horn one? Um, uh, it doesn't matter. It, but working in day that, and night, working day and night, working day and night, and then um, and September. Yeah. I, somebody asked me there that like if there's a song that comes on, you're gonna dance every time. What is? I was like September without a oh, yeah. slight competition. Of course. Um, that said, it is wildly full of things that I don't understand. But but but. I don't care. It exactly. does its job. And yes. you just can't help but wonder if you went in and went, don't speed up 10 BPM. Horn, let's fix the the high horn. Uh, and, and Verdine, get that one thing. Yeah. It'd be like, I don't know. It's just, you know, you look around the studio, everybody's kind of like, yeah, it's cool. You're like, ah, let's go back to the old one. Everybody, you know what I mean? Because I think there's something in imperfection that makes it so palatable, in my opinion. I think mm. I can't help but wonder if on the most subliminal, deep, 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 deep in our brain stems, we pick up on this thing isn't right and it's imperfect. And I love that. Sure. You know what I mean? That it doesn't, it somehow, it's just so heartfelt. It's like care bears. Just energy is shooting from the heart so profoundly that you're like, I, I know it's not right, but I can't help but yeah. just <laughs> of the imperfection of this song, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's so, part of the live music experience and live yes. albums. That's exactly right. Which is funny because perfect parlay. I wanted to talk to you. Tell me about the live in Amsterdam. Like w- w- that seems like that would, for me and my personality, that would be a anxiety ridden insecurity fest, not to mention I, I get terrified of just live recording at all. Yeah. I mean, like what was that process? Like how'd you connect with them? Like how much rehearsing, how much you involved in what they played and what they brought? I mean, what was that like? So for people that are listening who don't aren't familiar with this record, it's an album that I did with the Metropole Orchest. Um, they're an orchestra based out of the Netherlands just outside of Amsterdam. And they've done albums and recordings and shows with all of my heroes, like Pat Metheny, John Schofield, albums with Jacob Collier, Snarky Puppy, tons, in, insane yep. records, Shaka Khan, yep. Al Jarreau. There's so many incredible things that they've done. So they have a huge history. But 
what they started is a program called The Future of Jazz. And they wanted to feature some younger artists that are more up and coming. And they approached me. So the album just came out in April. The The recordings and shows that we did were in November of 2019. They emailed me, I think, March of 2019 and said, Hey, we're looking at our program. We've got this Future of Jazz thing. If you're not familiar with Metropolar Cast, here's what we do. We're looking at some of our programming for the year 2022, 2023. Are you interested? Yes, absolutely. It's I mean, this is literally the best pop, jazz, contemporary music orchestra in the world. They they know how to do contemporary pop music and they don't complain about it. They love it. They thrive in it. It's it's part of their voice, part of their thing. They are the and best. And I think dad. quick aside for those who are listening, if if strings and pop music while you hear them throughout the history of time it is a tenuous at best relationship like string players stereotypically don't enjoy doing it and two i hate says they're usually not real great because it takes a certain feel to fit in a track well or to sure. play along with the track and so that's why to your point Corey, that's why they would say and you would give them those props because to do that it's not just like well can a string player a violin player just play you know, Michael Jackson as well as he could Bach. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, they're two completely different skill yeah, sets. Two. An orchestra that crushes the classical thing cannot be assumed to crush the Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra. Bee Gees. Yeah, be, any, any of that sort of thing. Because they're, they're just different things. They're different right. sports. Right. There's different things that are celebrated. There's different targets that you're shooting at. In a lot of pop music, we're shooting at a, a certain type of, of middle of the beat there's a certain flow to the timing mm -hmm. of classical music. There's a certain flow to the timing of pop music. There's right. a certain dynamic. There's a certain thing that you're used to. And for a lot of orchestras, and not it's not to any fault. It's just most orchestras are classical music. That's the That's history right. of the thing. So it's not a slight. It's um, right. It's just they're they're two different things. Different. Anyways, so three years from now, yeah, let's do the album. A month later, they email me and say, hey, we actually had this thing come up. We're wondering if you can do three shows and and a rehearsal. And, and rehearsals and a few shows in six months. We're going to have to get moving right now. You're going to have to work on all the arrangements and all this, blah, 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 this and that. Put together a program. Yes, absolutely, is what I was saying. But in my head, I was freaking out, thinking, how are we going to arrange 90 minutes of music for a 60-piece orchestra I want to do some new music. I want to have another guest with me. How am I going to or figure all this stuff out? And I worked with, they have a few of their arrangers, orchestrators that I worked with to help with the load of arranging and orchestrating the whole thing. And it was just one of those things where you just got to go in and do it. And I thought, okay, there's two ways I could approach this. I could make the orchestra come into my world and do my stuff the way that I normally do it. And they just add to it. Or... I can lean into what their strengths are and do their thing playing my music in a way that represents their voice and what they do and represents my voice and what I do. And we found a, and that I found that that was going to be the best way to do it. It was more collaborative. They were more excited about it. And I just said, hey, I'm down to do it. How about we record an album of the thing? Because that would be really fun. And I think, you know, if we're going to put all these resources and time into this thing, it should live on beyond just the four shows that we're doing, the small tour. And they were totally down. 
And the next six months was, yeah, a lot of work (laughs) putting all that stuff together. But at the same time, I kind of just played my stuff the way that I normally do in the context of that orchestra. And that was by design in our arrangements and orchestrations. And they were incredible to work with. And then the, the most tedious process for me was to actually mix the album. I mixed the whole thing myself and it was, it was a, a long, hard process, but it was so much fun. I learned so much doing it and it's really fun to just present my music in a different way like that. Yeah. I can't imagine, you know, John McLaughlin, who we both know, and John's a dear friend of mine, he does a lot of this where he'll go like an Indiana, especially he's done a couple of concerts with, um, with a symphony out of Indiana and his preparation for it is just so insane. Like he will disappear for a month in his back in his, in his work area. And, you know, he's and he's, and I'm just like, man, when I, I saw that you'd done that and listened to it, I was like, that just feels like it would be so exciting and such a daunting task. Yeah. But it is literally my dream. Like that is what I love it, to me. It's like the old days of a TV orchestra. Mm. You know, to me, that would be such a dream job to have a team around where for, for me, for me to lean into my strengths of, Here's what I do on guitar. Here's the way that I write. Here's the way that I hear groove and hear things intermingling. Producer, big picture stuff. And then have a team around that it, that you can really trust as far as the arrangement and orchestration side to bring that vision to life with that ensemble because they know that ensemble. And then for that ensemble themselves to be able to pull off the thing exactly how you want it to be. I mean, it's it's so much yeah, that's fun. That's, that's what's worth the thing. So actually, rather than draining me of my creativity it just was like a vine that just kept blossoming. The more that I worked on it, the more it made me excited and the more that it made me creative. Although there was times, logistics things, how are we going to pull this off? What are we going to do for this? What are we going to do for this? How is this going to work? There was, There's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of moving parts, but the creative side was just so rewarding. That's amazing. It's, it's so good. It's so good. And I, and I love Cody sounds amazing on it too. Oh, he's incredible. So fun. What a singer. What a talent that... Cody Fry, what a joke. But I mean, I love what y'all did. So what's uh what's our final hot take? Final hot take. Hot take five. Final hot take. I'm a guitar player. Yep. It's a guitar hot take. All of my favorite guitar tones I've ever recorded are from going DI using plugins, not using a real amp. No way. Yes. For tell t- tell me about that. I, that is fascinating. And I never would have thought you would have said that. I know. First up, I'm a clean tone guitar guy. I love the kind of... I, the majority of my sounds are clean tones. And I love tube amps. Sure, there's a great feel to that. When I'm recording... I, I don't know. I, all my favorite guitar tones that I've ever gotten, some of them being on Wolfpack Records, some being on my records. Um, when I played on your album, I didn't, I didn't use mm-hmm. a real amp. That's right. It was all simulator stuff. And... That to me is is my favorite tones. Jack from Wolfpack got me hip to that. He showed me some of the stuff, whether it be using, you know, a console simulator like Prince did or Nile Rogers did for that sort of sound, or sometimes using a bass amp simulator instead of a guitar amp, because then wow. it doesn't sound so guitar ampy. Right. And it still kind of has a DI thing, kind of has an amp thing. You normally have to roll out some of the low end or whatever, but uh, all my favorite tones, the the cleanest, purest 
clean tones, my favorite clean tones, all DI, plugins. Um, yeah, that's the thing. It's so, I mean, this, well, people listening to this right now, there's probably people that are lying on the floor crying, like gnashing of teeth, <laughs> ripping shirts, like, you know, fires being started. Because this is such a contentious little space. You know, it's like know. purists will just, you know. But but I will say this. The the leaps and forward that they have made in the last decade oh, yeah. for plugins is truly... Uh, John McLaughlin and I yesterday were sitting talking. I played him something. Or no, he's playing me something. And I said... uh now, this is John, a piano player. I mean, and yeah, prodigiously good piano player. I said, dude, that piano sounds incredible. He looked at me and he kind of grimaced. He's like, dude, it's Keyscape. I know. I was like, uh, is it the uh, is it the old, the stand-up? And he's like, yeah, it's that, it's that wing upright. Wing upright. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly which one you're talking about. And I just, he said, and he looked at me with such like, he just, with th- this kind of shame. And he said, Dave, he said, you know, I mean, you just get to some points in recording where you're like, you you play this plugin. He said, I sent it to my friend. He said, no, he said the two texts that I've gotten from friends I played were like, dude, what is this piano sound? And he's like, dude, it's a plugin. I know. <laughs> I I did the same thing with Cody Fry. He recorded some stuff. I was like, dude, where did you record that piano? That's the best piano I've ever heard in my life. Literally, it's the defa- default Keyscape patch. C7 Grand or whatever it is. Yeah. And it sounds incredible. Okay, I haven't recorded DI guitars for 20 years. I've only right. been I've only been doing the thing like this for 6 years and in the last 5 years that's where I've been, whoa, this is all my favorite stuff. Between Universal Audio, Neural DSP, stock Logic plugins, I have my number one song on spot, on my spot Spotify top 5 is a tune called Cosmic Sands that I recorded with Tom Mish, another guitar player. Yeah, oh yeah, I love Tom. Both of us going DI into inputs one and two of his Apollo using only Logic, stock stock Logic amp, compressor, plugins. It's all stock Logic stuff. And I love both of our tones on there. And part of it is just getting to know how to get your sound. Mm-hmm. It, it took us a little while to get it, but we got it. And it sounds great. And it's fun. I mean, there, there's just so much... There's so many amazing plug-in companies out there doing stuff. And yeah, in the last few years, it's it's come a long way. The Wing Upright sounds incredible. The C7 uh, Grand Keyscape sound. Keyscape is crushing. The Scarby, Scarby oh stuff gosh, is dude, insane, insane for Whirlies and Rhodes. Yep. And, and part of it, though, is just getting a keyboard that if you're playing a piano, get a piano MIDI controller that has hammer-weighted keys, mm-hmm. and it's going to sound like that thing. If you That's get right. a semi-weighted or non-weighted keyboard it's not going to sound as good. But yeah. if you have a controller that's meant to go in line with that thing, it's so, you know, you have to have some setup stuff that's going to do you some favors, but right. oh my gosh. And it's just so controllable. Like you can go in and change anything you don't like immediately. Yes. It's insane. Which, how do you, yeah, I agree. So last question for you before I leave you to the wild. What, as, as you think about the future and what you're doing and kind of what you're trying to do, what does the future look like? Like, what, what are the things you get excited about in your career? I think continuing to just explore my voice on the instrument and as a writer. Um, the riddle that I'm trying to solve right now is as somebody who's primarily a rhythm guitar player, 
and kind of known as a rhythm guy. To make that sort of thing as a lead artist, to be the front person of my project as a rhythm guy, how to make that work in general. That's kind of a fun riddle. But Mm. then also beyond that, instrumental music in general and guitar music becoming just a part of the zeitgeist. It's been a while. We've had, you know, there was Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix. Of course, they sang, but there was songs that were instrumental. Uh, Eric Johnson's Cliffs of Dover. Many people listening may not know Eric Johnson or Cliffs of Dover, but as soon as they hear it, oh, that song. It was just part of the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fun challenge for me to see if that would work for me. And Mm -hmm. especially the seemingly uphill battle of being a rhythm guy. But I'm not going to let that, you know, if I tell myself it's a handicap, I'll treat it like it's a handicap. But right. I, I don't I don't think it's that. But it's just a fun, different challenge because it's not overt lead player guitar stuff. It's creating something that is more collaborative in what I do and instrumental. I'm kind of trying to solve that riddle a little bit. And then also seeing where the Wolfpack thing goes has been really fun. Um, that's been a, a really insane thing that's just risen, you know, come to a, a crazy rise over the last few years and um to keep scheming up with Jack things for the fearless flyers and kind of how to keep that thing going and what next steps to take with that. It, it's just fun to to keep the thing moving now that I feel like there's some momentum to try to keep it going, especially amongst a year where there's so much momentum that has been halted, not just for us or me or right. for you. It's for right. everybody. You know, that's the one thing that a lot of people when they're saying, Oh man, my momentum slowed down. It's, nah, it's not just you. It's everybody. The, yeah. And rightfully so we're, we're yeah. in, in the middle of a, a thing that none of us in our lifetime have ever seen. So yeah. I think trying to just see how to continue to develop my voice and um, bring positivity to the world and, and joy, joy, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Bring joy, that. how to learn to express that and connect with people in that way. I think that's a really, a really fun challenge. And and I, I feel like I'm still kind of trying to find my home in that. So, mm. you know, is it, is it more in the pop realm? Is it more in the R and B realm, the jam realm, the jazz realm? Will I end up being, somebody like a Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer where I end up doing more score type stuff. I don't know, but I think my personality is and my, my gifting and my passion is so much with performing as well. So I don't know. It's going to be a lot of different things. I'm just excited to see what continues to give me energy and creative stuff. Well, I'm glad you do it. Thank you. It's so good. You're so good. Thanks for doing this. Dude, what a pleasure. This is really fun. These five hot takes. Yeah.